This morning, Pastor Alex is away this week on study leave, and we are delighted to welcome our own Pastor Howard Sullivan. Uh, he retired a couple of years ago from uh, Presbyterian Church in Milton, and he and his wife Francie have been part of our Courtright congregation, and we are delighted to have Pastor Howard uh, preaching for us this morning. I'm going to share the word from Scripture this morning as we begin our time together. So this is from Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 through 12, and this translation is by Dr. R.T. France. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the Judean wilderness, proclaiming this message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. He is the person who was announced through Isaiah the prophet when he said, A voice of someone shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his path. This John wore a garment made of camel hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And people from Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. But when John saw that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to his baptism, he said to them, "'You brood of vipers, who warned you to escape from the coming judgment?' So produce fruit which fits with repentance, and don't think smugly to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones, but the axe has already been placed against the root of the trees. So every tree which does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. My own role is to baptize you in water with a view to repentance, but the person who follows me is stronger than me. I am not fit to take off his sandals. He is the one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. He has his winnowing shovel in his hand to clear his threshing floor. He will gather the grain into the granary, but the chaff he will burn up in a fire that cannot be put out. I'm going to invite Pastor Howard to come forward at this time. Thank you, Allison. And thank you, members of Courtright and the session for uh, allowing me this privilege of coming here to preach to you today. Let's pause for a moment and offer a word of prayer. Lord, as uh, we look into this beautiful word of yours in the Gospel of Matthew, I ask for your blessing upon us as, as we search for meaning in this passage. I ask your blessing upon me as I take what for me is a an unorthodox approach to this text, starting with a witness and a testimony to these, my friends in this church, and then expounding the connection to the text itself. It is an unusual way for me to begin, but I pray that this will be something edifying and, and um, beautiful for our people that are gathered today. May it be through the strength of your spirit that we are gathered, and that we progress and learn in faith today. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just before I launch in, I want to just set the tone a little bit. Um, I have not always been um, a gracious receiver of the word of the Lord. I resisted it for many, many years. And even uh, sitting there this morning and, and looking around the sanctuary, I had the feeling there might be a few here that also feel 
like I did when I first started attending the church. That, you know, it's, it's difficult at times to, to sense and feel that the Spirit's moving in me today. You know, it's been a hard, long week, or things are difficult in my life. What, what has God got for me today? And it's, it's obvious in some of your postures. It's obvious in some of the ways that you stand up and you don't sing. It's obvious in, in just so many little things that can be observed in the sanctuary. And I want you to feel, that's okay. I mean, I've been there. And, and, and standing up here and trying to, to reach you and, and, and connect with you in some sort of meaningful way, well, that's, that's what we are supposed to be about. So I've prayed hard about this, and I'm taking a very unusual um, path to the text for you this morning, and it's for you that are just not so sure that you want to be here this morning, okay? So this one's for you, my friends. So in January of 1991, I had an experience that taught me a lot about the season of Advent and what it truly means. As part of my seminary training, I went to the seminary as a retread. I'd already had a vocation, so in 1991, I was not a young person, but I was going through my training. As part of that training, I sought permission to join a missionary trip to Mexico City, exploring the reality of what third world missionary work would be like. The organization that had coordinated that trip was called GATE, Global Awareness Through Experience. And our group that was going consisted of a mission team from a Montreal church, the mission coordinator for the Presbytery of Montreal, and several students from the seminaries that were affiliated with McGill University. I was the only Presbyterian student that went. That'll come out later. The purpose of the trip was to interface with several existing missionary groups in Mexico, primarily in Mexico City, but also in the rural areas, so that we were uh, able to understand and be exposed to how missionaries worked in Mexico. We were uh, attending lectures at the University of Central America, and we were billeted there at the university. So I was in my final year of studies, and as it turned out, I was designated the uh, photographer for our group. I owned a beautiful 35-millimeter Nikon SLR camera, but back in those days, they were not digital. Not digital, that's a key thing to remember. They were, you know, crank them, put film in them. Some of you remember those days? Okay, so that's what we were operating with. We were operating with cameras that you cranked that had film in them. I was the designated photographer and I was shooting slide film. All that's really critical for you to keep in the back of your minds. So we got down there, and the learning experiences that were happening were amazing. They were the kind of experiences that you could learn from because you were immersed in the cultural reality of a foreign mission environment. And if you recall, in January of 1991, there was something else going on in the world that was uh, tremendously important. Any bells? Absolutely, thank you. The Gulf War was going on, Desert Storm was happening, and the U.S. was attacking Iraq. 
What we were amazed about was how knowledgeable and concerned even remote villages were regarding this war of aggression as they interpreted it. They seemed to expect that we would be better informed about it and that we would be able to somehow influence what was going on in that situation. After all, we came from Canada and we were supposedly part of the wealthy, influential first world, and wouldn't we be able to use that influence in a positive way? One of my most uh, lingering memories from that uh, experience was we held prayer meetings and we held worship services that were especially focused on that war. And these were people that, that they had nothing. They literally had nothing. They lived in the barrios, in shacks with tin roofs, and they loved Canadians because, you know, when we ship things to Mexico, we ship them in roof containers. Oh, you don't get what I mean by that. We ship them in containers of corrugated steel, and those corrugated steel containers become the roof of their house. And they think, Canada, look, Canada, right there on the roof of my house. And the walls of their house are made by tied-up cactus. But they think we're wonderful. And all we did was ship them something in a container that is good as a second purpose to make a roof. So in the midst of that abject poverty, in the midst of all kinds of problems with government vigilantes and men disappearing at that time, drug lords causing problems, they want to gather and pray for the people in the war in Iraq. A sensational, eye-opening understanding. You're in the back hills out in rural Mexico. I didn't even think they'd know there was a war going on. And we were put to shame in the way that they were concerned for the welfare of the world. But what I really want to share with you, what really gets connected to Advent is the episode that occurred to me because I was the designated photographer. Probably you're aware of that already. I had heard that it was important to get your film developed in Mexico before you left to come home, because if anything went wrong, you might still have a chance to make a, amends and take a few more shots. Well. <laughs> I've given you a clue already, things went wrong. I took my roll of 40 beautiful shots of slides from a trip we took out to a small town called Ixmaquilpan, and what happened when I got them back, the whole roll was blank, absolutely blank. What had happened was the, the leader uh, cracked and split and was broken in my camera. So when I rewound the film back into the canister, it wound back in beautifully. I took it in, but there was not one picture on it. And so I, I, I was devastated. I thought, oh man, here I am. I am the designated photographer. I have 40 beautiful slides of this trip we took out into the rural area to a small village called Ixmaquilpan, and we have no record. 
Now, I thought, well, you know, other people had their cameras. They'll have lots of records. They'll have, yeah. But nobody was shooting slides. Now, that's one of the reasons why I have no, no pictures to share with, with you. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it's going to be just a talking sermon today. Um, what happened was that th there were others shooting prints, but no one was shooting slides because I was the designated photographer. So I, I just had to make amends for this, had to figure out some way of recreating that situation. I still had my camera, I could still buy some film, so I pleaded with our group because GATE is one of these organizations that every two weeks another group is coming through. So another group was coming through after us, and, and I had an opportunity to go back to Ixmikilpan and take the pictures. The problem was I'd have to go by myself with the other group and then return to Mexico City and come home with my colleagues. Well, <laughs> as it would have it, there'd been some bad news of late, of tourists and businessmen being hijacked on the buses. And uh, one instance, um, I don't know if I even told Francie this, so just let me have a drink of water. <laughs> In one instance, uh, two businessmen were held up on a bus, stripped down to their underwear, and left on the side of the road. Like, these bandits took everything and left them on the side of the road. And these were guys that could speak Spanish. So, <clears throat> when I asked, could I go back, I don't speak Spanish, could I go back to Ixmiquilpan and then make my own way back to Mexico City to the university, uh, the first answer was, you gotta be kidding. But, you know, I'm pretty good at pleading. I think begging's maybe a better word. And eventually they gave in and they let me go. So I went back with the other group, and I took 40 more beautiful pictures of uh, the co-ops out there, with the co-ops with the chickens, and the co-ops with the pigs, and the co-ops with the um, calves, especially because they were Holstein calves from Canada. And it was wonderful. Then I went to the Campesino Center, and I took pictures of them there at the Cantino. And it, oh, beautiful, all these wonderful shots. And I thought, okay, I've made amends. So now you're asking me, well, what does this have to do with Advent? Okay, so let's be patient and we'll get there. I had a wonderful day. I got all those shots, the weather was beautiful. I'm just gonna grab a quick bite to eat and head back to Mexico City. So, they tell me after I've had my little snack that I gotta catch the bus at eight o'clock. Just outside of Vicks McKilpan, the buses don't come right into town because they're the stinkiest things ever you've seen. They don't worry about pollution, at least in 1991 they didn't. So these old diesel buses, they have probably a couple of million miles on them, and they just belch, belch ugly diesel exhaust all over the place. So they don't come into town. You have to walk out and get the bus out of town. So I thought, okay, out I go about 7.30, I'll get the bus. Beautiful night, the sun is just going down towards the west, 
and it's warm, even though it's January, and I'm thinking, I'm such a hero. <laughs> I've done such a great job. I've got 50,000 pesos, $20 American in my pocket, and everything in the world seems great. That is until at 8 o'clock, no bus comes. At 8.30, I'm thinking, should I run back into town and ask them, did you get the schedule mixed up? But in my mind, I'm thinking, just my luck, I'll run into town and the bus will come. <laughs> what should I do? I'm standing there in this dilemma. Nine o'clock, a bus comes. But it's not the right bus. I climb in, ask the driver, are you going to Mexico City? He says, no. And he waves me off unceremoniously back to the side of the road. Now I'm beginning to really worry. I've only seen one bus in over an hour and a half, and it's not going to Mexico City. About 9.30, another bus comes up. Its headlights are on. It pulls over to the side of the road. I timidly climb up the stairs. Are you going to Mexico City? The driver replies, See, si, Mexico City, see, si, see. Si. <laughs> I think I'm saved. This is good. I get on the bus. I sit down. I'm holding my backpack with my camera and all my things in it. And I'm thinking, oh, thank you, Lord. And then this little man on the other side of the bus says, you going to Mexico City in perfect English? I said, yes. He said, you on wrong bus. I said, what? He said, this bus come from Mexico City going to North Country. Huh. So he says, hurry, hurry, get off bus. So hurry, hurry, I got off the bus. And there I am back again, standing on the side of the road, going nowhere. And now the stars are out. It's very dark. Now I'm not just nervous anymore. I'm afraid. And I start to pray. I'm saved by this kind gentleman, but I'm back on the side of the road. What am I going to do? So now the connections to Advent become a little more obvious. I know something has to happen. I have to get back to Mexico City and join my colleagues because we're flying home in nine hours. What is it that will make this possible? What should I pray for? Wings like an angel? Fly home? What? How's this going to be? What's, what's going to work here for me? What is it? Now, our ancestors in the faith knew that God would deliver them from their suffering and from oppression. But they, too, had no concrete understanding of how this would happen. So what were they going to do when they pray for deliverance? Were they going to pray for a knight on a white stallion to come and overthrow their enemies? What, what, what could they do? How would they pray? What dilemma was facing them? So there I am. It's now pitch dark under the stars, and another bus comes rolling up. It's about 10 o'clock, a little, yeah, approaching 10. On the front of the bus are the words, your savior. No, no. <laughs> On the front of the bus are the words, Mexico City Norte. Mexico City Norte. Ha! That's it. 
That must be it. I'm so relieved, I race onto the bus, ask my question, pay my fare, and in a days, I sit down for the long journey to Mexico City, about two and a half hour bus ride. Ah, I'm thinking, here we go. But for those two and a half hours, I'm hugging my backpack like it's going to be torn away from me. Every muscle and bone is aching in my body. I, I just want to see my comrades. I want to hug them, and I, I want to know that I'm going to be safe, and I'm going to get home. We get to the terminus, the metro terminus in North Mexico City. Now, I've almost got tears of joy streaming down my face as I walk uh, quickly, briskly, to the stairs that lead down to the metro, to the last leg of my journey. And what happens? It's closed. There's a gate across the metro, the door's locked, it stopped running at midnight. Ah, to, to tell you, now I am not fearful, I am not upset, I'm angry, I am really ticked. I thought everything was worked out and I was safe and I was getting there. So I look around and all there is are vultures, taxis, <laughs> sitting waiting for those who can't get on the metro. They know they have their prey sitting right there. So I think to myself, I've, I've got to pick the right one. I've got to find the one who doesn't run the meter after midnight. So I'm looking and I'm speculating, and I find this guy who has a Volkswagen Beetle that is specially made as a taxi. Have any of you been to Mexico? They still have them. There's a Beetle, and there's no passenger seat in the front. So you squish whoever wants to ride in that thing in that back bench seat. <laughs> That's me for tonight. So I say to the fella, I need to go to university and insurgentes. Quinte cueste. That's the only Spanish I learned. How much? He looks at me, he, he looks at the situation, and we dicker back and forth. And eventually, we get to everything I have in my wallet. You know, we started, woo, and I dickered him down to everything I have in my wallet. So, okay, one thing for sure, I'm not going to pay him in advance. So I hop in, off we go in the little Volkswagen. He takes me downtown to Insurgentes and University. And he says, okay, here we are. I said, no way, this isn't where I want to go. I told you the university and insurgentes, not the intersection, the university. Oh, no, he says. And I said, I'm not getting out of your cab. So we have another little negotiation back and forth. He doesn't know I have no more money in my wallet than we've already bargained for. But I have the ace in my pocket. It's 20 American dollars. And back then in 1991, 20 American dollars was like, whoo, gold. So I said, okay, Azteco Stadium. He says, oh, Azteco Stadium. That's not far from here. He says, okay. 
he takes me to Azteco Stadium and drops me off. It just happens that Azteco Stadium is right on the campus of the University of Central America, and I know how to walk from there. So I get there back to the campus. End of story? Almost, almost. So I'm safe. I run back into the uh, residence. All my colleagues are so relieved. They all hug me and everything else. For the rest of that part of the trip, you can talk to Francie after the service because there's still a whole lot of story that was unbelievable to happen to get me home to Montreal. But mm, when I graduated from seminary, we all got these little um, award things that were made for fun by the students that were behind us. And mine was a little certificate that said, I was saved at a bus stop in Mexico. <laughs> so, let's continue. Returning to John by the Jordan, feeling guilty about lost pictures and heading back into rural Mexico is hardly comparable to what was going on at the Jordan River. However, unless we are able to draw some kind of parallel to our own lives, we never fully grasp the underlying message in the narrative gift that God gives us. The people that flocked to the Jordan to encounter John went with all kinds of motives. Some felt guilt. Some were curious. Some, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, went just to report to the Sanhedrin about the disruption in the religious status quo. But the text this morning tells us two essential things about our faith. First, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. This, I believe, is, is what Matthew meant, and I, I agree so uh, totally with Dr. Francis' translation. We get a clear indication that the kingdom is not partially here. The kingdom is not almost here. The kingdom is here. Now the question is, will we live in a way that we understand the kingdom is here? Because this is why I asked Allison to use this translation this morning. If we believe the kingdom is here, why are we waiting? Why aren't we living to the full? Why aren't we behaving like we're living with Jesus and we're living with God and we're living with the Holy Spirit? I think that's what I was being taught there on the road. God isn't testing us in every one of these instances. He's giving us a chance to learn I'm right here. I'm right here. It just happens that you don't observe me, that you don't understand how close I am, that you want to bludgeon on in your own way. Snap, snap, snap. And you never even knew the leader of your film wasn't advancing. Huh? So, I was going to say to you, believe it or not, I have none of those pictures today. I loaned them to the church in Montreal. 
to tour through the presbytery and they never gave them back. So the end result of all my huffing, puffing, taking all those chances, going back, nada. I lost the pictures. I lost a slide carousel. I lost the physical reminder of all those lovely memories. I thought I risked everything to preserve them. And what do I have in the end? Thank you. <laughs> Nothing. And, and the way I look at it is the Holy Spirit had the last laugh in all this. But I learned a huge, valuable lesson. Even though the text does not indicate hope for those Sadducees and Pharisees who went down to the Jordan with such poor motivation, I really hope some of them stayed afterward and were baptized by John. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But the text never tells us. But it was my hope. And the second one is produce fruit which fits repentance. How do I know you're in league with me? That's how I know that you produce fruit that is fit for repentance. So the second element of our existence, which is revealed in our text, centers around John's criticism of the Jewish leaders. They lack evidence in their lives that repentance has taken place. Here, the Greek term is eis metanoian. Again, I agree with Dr. Francis' interpretation that this term is inclusive of the idea to move in a new direction and change one's life. The typical translation of metanoian is to turn, to change direction, meaning to adopt a new way of going about things. And here, John expects those who are of faith will have a testimony that indicates this change has occurred. The testimony, as I understand it, should be about your own life. The problem with the Pharisees and Sadducees is they wanted to tell you what to do, while they themselves were not able to practice what they preached. And so one of the things that I've learned over 40 years of standing like this is you better be able to show evidence in your own life before I point at you again. And I don't mean to do that, sir. So that's the main difference. The main difference is that teachers of Jesus ought to be examples of Jesus to the best of their abilities. Do we fall? Of course we do. We are made of human flesh. But I have a little bit more to say about that, and then we're done. The beautiful thing about John is how do you argue lifestyle issues with a man who lives in the desert, who eats locusts and wild honey, and wears camel hair for a coat? And how, do you, how do you argue with that guy about ethics, about living 
truly to your faith standards. You can't. I mean, truly, he understood how to equate his faith with his life practice. In fact, later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will say of him, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, can you get a compliment better than that? Not one. Not any of the prophets in the Old Testament. Not Elijah. None. That's... That's big, big time praise. So friends, consider how this man, John, whom Jesus names the greatest among those born of women, comports himself with respect to the practice of baptism. And I'll wrap up with this. Here he is down at the Jordan. Hundreds, if not thousands, are coming down to him to receive the message he's preaching and be baptized by him. To me, that sounds like the first Christian megachurch. Does he have the problems that megachurches have these days? Is there a scandal with John the Baptist that you've read of? Does he need 15 minions to help him do his ministry? Does he build a megachurch with all the bells and whistles there beside the Jordan? No. He has one Simple, simple message. And the message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has arrived. And it's it's strange in a way that his prophetic message is the first message preached by the Messiah. That's Jesus' first message. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has arrived, and it has arrived in me, Jesus. I mean, what more endorsement can you ask for? So here he is. He's ready. He's he's propped up with these thousands that are coming to see him. And what does he say about his baptism? He says, my role is to baptize you in water with a view to repentance. But the person who follows me is stronger than me. I am not fit to take off his sandals. He is the one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. Humility. John understood his own role from the get-go and readily accepted it, knowing that the Messiah has arrived and that because of that, his prophetic word is fulfilled. As for myself, I still consider my night on the lonely road in rural Mexico to be one of my experiences of being baptized in the Spirit. I'm so grateful to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I feel I actually deserve the fire of judgment, but I receive the grace of his loving care. And that is only one of many times when I've experienced that blessing. May you, who I'd hoped to reach this morning, experience those same blessings. May you know in that moment that God has touched you in a way 
you never thought possible. For he is gracious and he is powerful and he can be judge. But most often he chooses to be loving and graceful and kind if you will just give him a moment of your time. God bless you all. Amen.